How's everyone today? Wow, very beautiful faces out in the audience. Thought I'd start with a compliment. <laughs> Always works. All right, let me just get the hang of this lectiony thing. Perfect. Okay. So, um, if you've been around in the last few weeks, you might know that we've been looking at um, the parables of Jesus um, in the book of Luke. And prior to that, we were looking at the book of the Song of Songs, and that really gave us an opportunity to really dig into meditating on Jesus as the lover of our souls. And now, as we look at the parables of Luke, we're able to, you know, sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him as our teacher. So that's what we'll be doing today. So, what is a parable? Well, a parable is a simple story um, that gives a, a moral or spiritual lesson. Um, and what I find really fascinating about them is that Jesus' parables. They communicate really deep, profound truths, but often it's like they're hidden in plain sight. So rather than making the message more accessible and clear, sometimes it seems as though you know, the message is hidden from us and it does the opposite. So why is that? Well, as Jesus tells these stories, he's on his way to the cross. and He's encountering people along the way who are wise in their own eyes. So they claim to know God, but actually their actions betray their words. And as we heard a few weeks ago when Steph was preaching, um, earlier in Luke, Jesus rejoiced and he thanked God, saying, you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, for such was your gracious will. So the parables, they simultaneously obscure the truth from the proud and also reveal it to the humble. And this isn't just, you know, Jesus being tricky, trying to bring the proud down a peg. Actually, he's got this indescribably glorious future for us that we're going to be looking at today. And it's all about us having this simple faith in God's surprising plan. So let's just pray as we start. Yeah, Father God, we just thank you so much for the opportunity that we can freely worship you today. I thank you that as we just come to you in humility, Lord, you've got just an amazing future ahead of us. Um, as we just turn away from our pride and, and we just learn from you, I thank you that today we can, um, we can just know your kingdom in us, Lord. So... I'll get around to the parable soon, but before we understand today's parable, uh, we need to rewind a bit to understand the context that came before, and that will give us a lot of insight. And why was the parable inserted at this specific moment? So if you just read the parable alone, we might not get an understanding of it. So we're going to start by looking at Luke 13, Luke chapter 13, um, verses 10 to 17, which is, precedes our parable for today, and that will come up behind me. So it says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. And then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So let's just recap and make sure we understand what's happening here. So it's a Sabbath day, which is a day of rest as commanded by God to the Jewish people. And it's a very public situation with Jesus at the front. And in the middle of his teaching, you know, he's in mid-flow of his teaching, he looks out and he sees this woman and she's hunched over, she's unable to stand. 
And he calls her over and he says, you're freed. And she gives glory to God. You know, she's been this way for 18 years. So we can barely imagine that. And while her heart is rejoicing, there's another heart that is seething with anger. And that's the ruler of the synagogue. So what's his problem? This seems like a good thing. But apparently she's come on the wrong day in his mind. It's the Sabbath day. And then he publicly turns to all the other needy people in the crowd and says to them, come back on a working day. And there was a great deal of significance um, to the Sabbath day. It indicated a few things, which we don't have time to fully go into, but recognition of God's role as creator, Israel's identity as a liberated people, and also humility through pausing work. So it was not only a day of rest, but it was also a day of joy and worship. But here what we see is that what God intended to be a holy good thing had actually been turned into little more than religious brownie points. And their words suggested that they cared about God's honour, but actually their actions dishonoured God because they were missing the fundamental law of love. So Jesus takes this opportunity to expose these rulers' hearts. He exposes the hypocrisy. And he says, you know, you wouldn't let the Sabbath day stop you from seeing to the needs of your animals, so why would you let it stop you from seeing to the needs of this woman? Why shouldn't she be shown compassion also? And it's at this point that Jesus packs a punch with today's parable. So the following verses, uh, the beginning of the parable is verses 18 and 19 in chapter 13. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So the meaning of the kingdom of God, it means God's reign or God's rule. Um, So Jesus is saying, what will it look like when God rules? So, you know, if you read this in isolation, you might think, what's that got to do with what's just happened? But actually, what we've just seen with this liberation of the woman is a tiny hint of this greater kingdom that is to come. So Jesus' liberation is an act of the kingdom, and it's a hint of God gathering all people to himself. And what the ruler has dismissed as out of place, um, out of time, Jesus says, actually, this is exactly what I'm about. God's kingdom is going to be a demonstration of love. It's going to be a place for all people to find rest. And with this kingdom, just as his adversaries were put to shame, these rulers, also this kingdom, there's no opposition or evil that's going to be able to stop it coming to fruition. So this picture of the kingdom as a tree, this is something that the Jewish leaders would have recognized from the Old Testament prophecies. So for example, Ezekiel 17, 23, it says, On the high mountain of Israel, I will plant it, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest under the shade of its branches. So there we see that what Jesus has said, it's not a picture he came up with in that moment. He's directly referring to their expectation of the kingdom. And they knew that God had a glorious plan. He was going to work through them. And it was front of mind for them, the kingdom of God. It wasn't a random topic that Jesus brought up. It was actually the climax of human history. Um, it, was, it was the front, front of their mind. And they had their own ideas about how that might come about. But the unexpected detail was how this kingdom would come about. And Jesus says it would come from a tiny seed. And that would have been really shocking for them. So this phrase of the mustard seed in this time and place, it was commonly used to emphasize something really small. So hopefully you'll see a picture of how small a mustard seed is. Um, Can you even see it? It's really tiny. Um, So Jesus is contrasting this eventual huge kingdom with this tiny, tiny detail. And what he's saying is, essentially, the kingdom is going to make you say, 
How did that come from that? And from a beginning so small that you could dismiss it or miss it right under your nose, God has set in motion this inevitable growth of a kingdom that will displace all other kingdoms on earth. So the Jewish expectations of the kingdom, that was the way they expected that to come was more of a military conquering, a political power that would come in and rescue them from their present troubles. So a mustard seed definitely wasn't the picture that they had in mind or, or what they hoped for. It probably would have been a bit of a letdown, to be honest. And next we see, as the second part of this parable, Jesus gives a similar illustration of the kingdom. In verse 20, he says, it says, And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So leaven is basically another word for yeast. So if any of you have made bread, which I certainly haven't, any of you are a bit more homely than me, um, you probably know the process a little bit better than I do. But essentially, you take this tiny bit of this yeast substance and it transforms the whole batch and causes it to expand and you get a loaf of bread. So again, we can see this picture of tiny beginnings resulting in a huge impact. So the kingdom of God was going to start with this invisible influence. It would go almost unnoticed at the beginning, but then it would permeate throughout the society and the world. And they might not even realise its presence until it had already taken hold. So the kingdom of God is at first unseen, but it will affect everything. Nothing will escape its influence. And this tiny substance will have a disproportionate impact. And there's also another way of understanding uh, the parable of the leaven. So often... As you've been following the series, you might have noticed that often Jesus uses parables as subversive and confrontational stories and warnings that basically expose the hearts of the proud. And at the start of the previous chapter, chapter 12, Jesus privately says to his disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So the Pharisees were the Jewish religious leaders. And in the Bible, leaven is a common symbol for impurity. So leaven was strictly forbidden from the pure offerings that were made to God. So maybe in the disciples' minds, the dots are kind of joining up and they're remembering what Jesus said to them about the leaven and they've seen the situation of how the rulers have responded to the healing of the woman and now Jesus saying, you know, about the leaven, essentially. So perhaps Jesus is painting a picture of an unstoppable corruption of the people that were called to be God's holy, pure ones. And just like the fermented yeast affects the whole batch of pure flour, the impurity of their heart contaminates what God has called to be pure. And the reason that these proud rulers are condemned is because essentially they're more concerned with the appearance of holiness than the reality of it. And that's hypocrisy. So they talk on behalf of God, but they don't actually know him. And also another, um, just slightly earlier, Jesus said of the Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. So they were created to reflect a perfect God, but they're indelibly tainted by their sin. And that's the human condition. So even the most religious person, despite all their good acts, is not completely pure, and that affects the whole of them. They're not as righteous as God created them to be. And if we're honest, aren't we the same? Don't we care more about being well thought of sometimes than showing compassion? And don't we miss God's heart when it's inconvenient or because we're more preoccupied with our own hearts? I know that these have been true of me. And Romans 3, 10 to 11 says, No one is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. So today's parables, you might think, well, why did God want to use this mysterious method of small beginnings to bring the kingdom? Why didn't he just immediately just sort out what was wrong with the world? Well, as we've just seen, the problem was in our own hearts. We were the ones that had to be dealt with. And in turning away from a perfect God, we became powerless to bring ourselves back. And we also became blind to our own state. But just like the woman who was bound by Satan for 18 years, God had a merciful plan also for us to liberate us from bondage to sin and bring us back as his righteous children. But there was only one way that he could bring both justice in punishing sin, but also liberty in bringing us freedom. And that was by planting a seed. So the tiny mustard seed that we heard about, it represents the good news of Jesus. Just like the seed, Jesus had to die to bring new life. Well, actually, he chose to die. He knew exactly what he came for. He had his eye fixed on the prize of redeeming people back to God. And that small beginning had to start with an ending, an ending to his life and an ending to our sin. And if there was any other way that we could have entered the kingdom of God, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die. But it was necessary for Jesus to say on that cross, it is finished. He had to complete the work that he came to do. So here we see the ultimate picture of undeserved liberty, that this unblemished son of God, perfect Jesus who never sinned, he took the punishment that would set us free if we turn back to him. And we also see the ultimate picture of undeserved justice. So it's actually shocking that a perfect God, it seemed right to him that he should take our place on the cross and in the grave to deal with our sin. And where we'd forged this path towards destruction, Jesus walked that path to the bitter end. And we would have been utterly defeated by that judgment. But the power of sin couldn't hold Jesus down. So he, just like the seed that sprouted up, Jesus rose again to life in the power of his righteousness. And all who turn away from their sin and accept Jesus by this simple faith in humility are raised with him as well. And they're no longer shackled by the sin that holds them down. So this surprising beginning of God's kingdom, at first glance, it might just seem something you could overlook or dismiss or seem foolish, but actually it was a powerfully intentional rescue plan. And 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. So not only did it seem right to God, but it pleased God to offer the kingdom through this small beginning of faith. And just like with the parables, we see that this is unavailable to the proud and to those who consider themselves above it. But it's fully available to all who turn away from their sin. They recognize their need and do a 180 and turn to God. But the proud, you know, they would refuse this because it means admitting that what they thought was their wisdom was actually foolishness. So Jesus is calling people to repent and to turn away from that dead end that only leads to death. And as we do make this turn and come to Jesus like little children, we can just humbly turn up empty-handed and receive it as a free gift, this righteousness of Jesus. And there's no work on our part except to turn and receive. So it's a great deal. And God gets all the glory. And then he continues to provide everything that we need from that point onwards. So will we, will you, have the faith of a tiny mustard seed? Will you have the faith of a child? to accept Jesus not only as your teacher, but as a king of your heart. So incredibly, Jesus' resurrection 
it started at the beginning of the kingdom. It brings the beginning of the kingdom into our own hearts as we turn away from our sin and let Jesus rule in our hearts. And with this growth of the kingdom that we've seen from the seed to the tree, we see that mirrored on an individual level. So the kingdom starts like a seed in our own heart, the receptive human heart, through faith. And then it grows as we grow in maturity, as we grow in faith. And it doesn't just stay as a private religious experience. It grows and becomes visible. And what at first needed protection under the ground to keep it safe, it can now branch out and provide shelter for others. So when we accept Jesus' invitation into the kingdom, it changes us in some really profound ways. And here are just three. Number one, we gain the power to love, literally. So as a follower of Christ, you'll see in the Bible that we're described as being in Christ. So what that means is that what Jesus gains, we gain. What he does, we do. And, you know, our capacity to love, I'm sure we all know, it's, it's so small. You know, we, we don't even live up to our own standards. We have these ideals, but it's so limited. But as we acknowledge our sin, that Jesus died for us, we're also acknowledging that we've died with him. And that means that as he was raised, we're raised with him. And that power, the resurrection power that raised Jesus is now in us. So we've become a new creation with this new power in us, which is amazing. And it means that we now have the power to love like Jesus loved. We can never do that in ourselves. So 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 18 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. And the second thing that changes with the kingdom in our hearts is that we gain the motive to love. So, you know, often we say to school kids, I'm sure we've all been told, treat others the way you'd like to be treated. But what if we said to them, treat others the way you have been treated? Well, actually, it would be pretty chaotic. And that's often the reality of what we see, um, how we treat each other. So if hurt people hurt people, could it be true that loved people love people? And the Bible reveals that the true expression of love, it's not self-generated. It's actually born out of first having received love from its original source. So John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. So there we've got our motive to love, that we have been loved. And thirdly, we can offer more than love. So, you know, what had eternal significance for the woman who was healed was not necessarily the healing or the compassion she was shown, but it was actually the spiritual liberation from Satan's power. So let's not only offer people acts of love, but point them towards true liberty in Jesus. And we get to play a role in inviting all nations into this great kingdom. But, you know, as we're so excited to bring people in and see this tree flourish, let's just make sure that we're not doing people a disservice by being an organization that promotes good, because we're actually an organism that promotes God. He's the one growing this thing. It's not about us. And that's really liberating once you realize that. And we're just a humble bird in the tree singing out to others that we found a safe place to rest. So that's so liberating as we sidestep and we realize that God is the one growing the kingdom. But currently we only experience a taste of the kingdom. You know, today we see so many things in the world that are troubling. And, you know, I don't need to tell you that on an individual level, you know, we experience pain alongside joy, fear alongside faith, 
and health problems alongside healing. So many other struggles. And our lives are just not made instantly problem-free as soon as we have the kingdom in our hearts because we still live in a battlefield. But God works through these struggles to demonstrate who he is and also who he's ultimately going to show himself to be. And that's not a cliche, it's actually a reality. And on a global level, we have a similar picture. So you need to turn on the news and so many things that don't reflect God's intention for creation. And it's in these moments that the kingdom, it just seems like so tiny, like a mustard seed. And people say, well, where's, where's God? You know. And even after Jesus' resurrection, the number of believers was so small. And they were persecuted and they were persecuted, unimpressive. And one commentator said, the kingdom of God on earth was then composed of Jesus and his few wavering followers. To the eye of sense, it seemed impossible that this little movement could ever stir the world, could ever become a society of mighty dimensions. And since then, you know, we've seen the gospel, it's spread and it's captured so many hearts across many nations, but it's still far from what it eventually will be. And it's really important that we realise that it's not the end of the story. And if you think it's the end of the story in God's plan, then you'll be very confused and disillusioned. So let's not be discouraged by small beginnings where we don't yet see the blossoming of God's intentions. Because what we've learned today is that it pleases God to flip our expectations and to demonstrate his power when we don't expect it. And Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So where is this all going? So we've experienced the beginning of the kingdom in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. But what's it going to look like when the kingdom comes in its fullness? And the Bible teaches that an actual day is coming where Jesus is going to reign and he's going to take all authority back from Satan and he's going to rule physically over the earth in his power and glory. And then we'll experience the kingdom of God in its fullness and that's actually the fullness of the joy of the good news. And do you believe that? And does it lead you to rejoice? And, you know, when you tell someone the gospel, is that the pinnacle of where this is all going? And, you know, as humans, as we've already talked about today, we have this tendency to make our own lifespan the central narrative of everything that we think about. We don't really think much about a generation before, maybe, maybe three generations before, a couple of generations after, but we think within the limits of our own lifespan. And we live in an instant generation and I'm the worst for this, but even waiting four minutes for the tube is intolerable and feels, feels like an injustice. So what we see here with the metaphor of this great tree is God is telling us we need to think on a completely different timescale. It's not defined with our life in the middle. It's much bigger than us. And that's so liberating because no matter what we are going through, we can see that on the scale of eternity, these things that trouble us in life Actually, they can fade into insignificance compared to what God is going to do ultimately and that he's going to make all things right. So we can be really encouraged to know that history is building towards something. It's going somewhere. It's going towards the reign of God. And at that time, we're going to be able to bask in his presence. We're going to be able to see him face to face. It's unimaginable. Everything good and perfect in God, all the love in God, his perfection will be fully expressed throughout all of creation. And, you know, just imagine what that's going to be like. Imagine the arts, sport, technology, worship, and probably even new categories that we've never even thought of. Imagine what it's going to be like for God to fully reign 
And I think we've even seen, you know, in our own lives, the amazing power of the kingdom in our workplace. But what is that going to be like when it's perfection? It's just really exciting and just mind-boggling, basically. And there's also just amazing comfort available to us to know that whatever we struggle with now, everything from the kingdom of darkness is going to be completely banished. We'll have new bodies. We won't struggle with sin. We won't struggle with sickness. And we won't live with shame or regret. And again, it sounds like a cliche because we hear these things so often, but have we taken them into our hearts and does it excite us and help us to get through every day? So Revelation 21 verse 4 to 5 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So just to finish, I just want to say the kingdom is open now to you. If you'll humbly turn away, if you accept the foolishness of the gospel and not dismiss that tiny mustard seed that changes everything, then Jesus will welcome you in and never turn you away, unlike the religious ruler. So let's just pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, that as we just walk around London with our heads down in our everyday lives, I thank you that we have this amazing, amazingly glorious future ahead of us. I thank you, Lord, that um, you will reign on the earth. And we just can't imagine what that's going to look like. We can't imagine, but we are so excited that you've made a way for us to participate in that. You've, wa- you've made a way that we can actually, we can actually rejoice and and have a relationship with God in a way that would have been impossible otherwise. And we thank you that that plan, it seemed foolish and it seemed um, bizarre. No one saw it coming, but God, you've made that way that we now can realize this thing that we could overlook is actually the entrance into the kingdom. Um, And as we turn away from our sin and just receive all you've got from us, you know, it's a no-brainer. It's just you offer us everything. Your kingdom, it will reign and it will displace all other kingdoms. But I thank you, God, that we can have eternal life in you to, to enjoy that and, and not experience the punishment of being outside that, Lord. Amen.